0: Happy Mother's Day to all the moms in the house, and we are here because of you, literally, right? Uh, We have received our life, our existence in the world through you, and not only for the event of our birth, but the years of sacrifice and love and laying down your life that we might live and thrive, and so thank you. Uh, we also recognize that mothers day can be a painful day for some of us uh, maybe if you have an estranged relationship with your kids or for those who kids uh, maybe you have a painful relationship with your mom uh, or maybe for those who have wanted desperately to become a mother but have been unable to for a variety of reasons or have lost even lost a child and we want you to know that we see you we grieve with you today and We grieve with those who grieve, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. There is something powerful about motherhood that I believe is a window into the heart of God, a God who delights to bring life into the world, new life into the world, and to raise us up as his children in the way that we should go. So happy Mother's Day. Uh, We are going to be in Jonah 3 tonight. We are in... The third week of a five-week series, we've still got two more weeks to go. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. Our ushers would love to come forward and to give you one as we dive into Jonah 3. Now, as we're in the book of Jonah, one of the challenges we can have is we often have kind of a fairy tale, you know, you can see it as sort of like a children's fairy tale uh, image of the book. And uh, and if, uh, just like a superficial reading, we're like, okay, it's about this guy who's in the belly of a fish, and then he gets spit out, and the lesson is don't run from God, right? But one of the things we've been seeing is God wants us to, to move from kind of a children's fairy tale superficial reading to seeing first that this is actually a very sophisticated piece of literature, and that God has given it to us through his word, and it's got powerful motifs and themes that actually speak prophetically into our lives today. It speaks to things like mission, like forgiving your enemies, like the dangers of nationalism, and the power of forgiveness. Israel actually saw Jonah as a microcosm of her own story. It's almost like the uh, Old Testament story as a whole condensed into this miniature package, right? Here's what I mean by that. Like Jonah, Israel was called to be a light to the nations. But like Jonah, Israel ran from that calling, took a turn to 180, and went the other opposite direction, down, 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 and distance from God. And like Jonah, Israel found herself surrounded by uh, pagan people and ways and practices, and herself was spiritually asleep, like Jonah on that boat. But God, in order to awake his people out of their stupor, God sent a storm. The prophets use the image of God sending a storm as this image for God sending his people into exile. So Daniel 7, for example, Daniel 7 verses 2 and 3 talks about uh, God churning up the great sea, the sea of the primordial waters of chaos, the sea of the nations. And out of this churned up sea with the storm that God made, these uh, great beasts arose to actually devour and drag God's people down into exile, away from the land with him. But her story was not over yet. Like Jonah, Israel, when she found herself in the belly of the beast, so to speak, in the belly of these empires, she would cry out to God like Jonah did and recognize uh, her sin in the depths of her condition and cry out to God in repentance. And God would spit his people out, out from the empires, back into the land where they could resume their vocation as a light to the nations. So we see here in Jonah a microcosm of the story of God in the Old Testament. And last week we left off where Jonah gets spit out of the fish, and today we pick up where he's resuming this vocation or calling to go to Assyria and proclaim God. And I would suggest to you the greatest miracle in the story of Jonah is not that a dude survives in the belly of a fish, it's that he survives in the belly of Nineveh end that Nineveh repents. So Let's jump in. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah here listens the second time, right? This is the same wording that's used back in chapter 1, where God says to Jonah, hey, arise, get up, and go to Nineveh, but instead, Jonah goes down, away, the other direction. Now, the second time, Jonah listens, and he arose, and he follows the call of the Lord to go to Nineveh. Oh, where did I go? There we go. (laughs) Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going the day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Let's we'll start here for a minute. <clears throat> First thing we see is that Jonah goes back into the belly of the beast. Jonah gets spit out of one beast, and he goes into another. Now, <clears throat> Jonah didn't want to go into Nineveh. And if I were him, I wouldn't want to either. To get the picture, this would be like a Jew walking into the heart of Nazi Germany in World War II. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was brutal. Historians remark how crazy, brutal Assyria was. It was the largest empire in the ancient world up to that time, and the most cruel. And so scholars still observe kind of their, and study their military tactics and, and how they basically conquered and amassed such a large amount of territory. What they would basically do is look at a map and find the most strategic cities and go, how can we go just demolish those cities, lay waste, and then conquer and take over the villages and surrounding areas? So the way that they would do this is they would build these massive siege ramps that were as tall as the city walls, and with this technology, they would come up, and uh, when they laid siege to a city, they would pull out some of the people from the city and take them out to the outside, and they would uh, skin them alive, and then they would take others and they would impale them on stakes and lift them up outside the city. And it was a scare tactic, a way of going, hey, if you guys don't surrender, we're going to do the same thing to you. Then once the city had either surrendered or been taken over, uh, what they would do to their enemies, they, would, uh, they were famous for chopping off both legs and one arm, but leaving the remaining arms so they could shake their victim's hand in mockery as they died. They would force family and friends to carry around the decapitated heads of their loved ones on poles to show as a sign of their defeat. Happy Mother's Day, right? (laughs) Sorry, it's kind of grotesque. But if we want to get into the mindset of understanding why Jonah harbored such resentment and anger and hatred towards Nineveh, and why it was so scandalous that God might actually extend mercy or forgive— We have to understand, they were like the Isis of the ancient world. The king's palace in Assyria, when you walked into Nineveh and the king's palace, they had large, massive uh, displays, like art displays, um, of the cities that they had demolished and raised to the ground, and the surrounding fields and plains littered with corpses. So that if you were a visiting dignitary, you could see, don't mess with Nineveh, Right? Uh, You can still observe these in like the British uh, History Museum (laughs) in Britain. That's where the British Museum is at, (laughs) for the way, for those of you who don't know, right? Scholars have described uh, Nineveh and Assyria as a terrorist state, with a history as blood-curdling and gory as any that we know of. The prophet Nahum, another biblical prophet like Jonah, Uh, He he describes Nineveh in the Bible, in the book of Nahum, as a city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victim. It's a military city filled with the sound of galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears. She has enslaved nations with endless cruelty, and within her are stacked many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. So Assyria was brutal, and she was after Israel. This was the empire that would uh, come and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and devour and drag her people into captivity. This was gonna be the beginning of the exile. Now, Assyria was brutal and Assyria was also a beast. Uh, This this passage, this chapter of Jonah, uh, does a lot of things to tie Nineveh with the fish that swallowed Jonah, to actually associate those two things together. Here's a few examples. We read that it is a great city. Nineveh was a great city, and that word great, the Hebrew word gadolim, it's used to describe three things in the book of Jonah, uh, the great storm, the great fish, and the great city. Uh, so there's a tie and an echo there. Uh, we're also told that the city was took three days breadth to walk through, right? Now, uh, Nineveh was seven miles wide, seven miles across, right? So it would maybe take you three days to walk across if you were my great-grandma Taurus and her walker, right? Like an average person walking average pace, probably go about 40, 50 miles in three days, right? So there is a sense of exaggeration here in the size, but it's associating the city of three days' breadth with the three days that Jonah spends in the belly of the great fish. Third, we also see uh, the word fish itself. The Hebrew word fish is dag. And the god, the chief god of Assyria, was Dagon, the fish god, right? Uh, in the early days, thousands of years before, uh, they believed Dagon, the scholars believe Dagon started as like the god of grain. But over time, by this point in history, it was associated as this fish god. And we're told here that uh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Well, that word exceedingly is actually the word Elohim. So it's literally uh, the city of a great La Elohim, the city belonging to a great god. Which god? Dagon, the fish god, right? And these are some pictures of um, representations of the god of Assyria, of Dagon, the fish god. And these are some reliefs uh, from Assyrian, Assyrian cylinder and all depicting Dagon, the great fish god, the god of Assyria. So there's a correlation or a tie here between the sea monster that arises and devours Jonah, the rebellious prophet, and drags him down, and Dagon and his city, and uh, Jonah is walking into the heart of the beast, into the belly of the empire. And he's going to proclaim the word of God. When Jonah gets into the belly of this beast, he cries out, and he gives a five-word sermon. Uh, in Hebrew, it's five words he uses here. Uh, and this is actually the shortest sermon in the Bible. Right? It's interesting, you know, it, says, hey, 40 days and the city will be overthrown. But we should kind of be scratching our heads and ask at this point, is that all you're supposed to say, dude? <laughs> like, was that everything? Uh, he had no mention of God. And the prophets always, when you read the prophets, they're always going, hey, but if you turn, there is grace. If you repent, if you relent, if you return to God, he loves to show mercy. But there's none of that with Jonah. What's going on? Well, one option could be that this is just kind of a a summary of this bigger message that he's given. But the more likely option, the one that I think is going on here, is what a friend of mine, uh, Tim Mackey, calls prophetic sabotage. Jonah is engaging in an act of prophetic sabotage. Think about it. Jonah hates Assyria. Jonah hates the Ninevites. They're the they're the, the oppressors, the persecutors of his people. The only thing worse than walking into nazi headquarters and having your head blown off is walking in and having hitler fall to his knees and repent he doesn't want them to receive mercy or forgiveness we actually find out in chapter 4 we'll look at next week that he reveals and says the real reason i didn't want to go wasn't because i was afraid of what they would do to me god is because i was afraid of what you would do for them That jonah's bigger fear is that they might find mercy rather than the destruction and vengeance that he is waiting for. So I think Jonah here is engaging in this act of prophetic sabotage. He's just giving the word of judgment, but leaving off any kind of breadcrumbs or clues that could lead them to hope. I think of this like when I tell my kids, I'm like, hey, uh, you guys pick up the clothes off the floor, right? And they're like, no. And I'm like, no, pick up the clothes off the floor. And so they're like, fine. And they pick them up and they throw them on their bed, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's literally, you literally did what I asked, but you missed the heart behind it. You didn't actually follow through on the the bigger intention. And I think Jonah here is kind of a picture like that, where God is like, hey, go to Nineveh and preach my prophetic message. It's like, no. Spits him out of the fish. All right, Jonah, go back to Nineveh and preach my prophetic message. Fine. But he goes, but I'm only going to give this much. And what's ironic is it's still enough for God to use to draw them towards. Self. Loving your enemies is spiritual warfare. That's one of the things that we see here. Loving your enemies is spiritual warfare. Uh, that w- for Jonah, this is more than just uh, a person to person thing. He is going up against the imperial power that has oppressed his people. He is going up against the spiritual powers and the idolatry and the stuff the ideologies and all that lay behind that. He is going up against some of the deepest hatred and antagonism where the enemy has gotten his tentacles in Jonah's own heart. Loving your enemies is spiritual warfare. A friend of mine who has taught me the most about this is Celestin. Celestin Mosakura, he is a Rwandan leader uh, from Rwanda. Uh, He endured the genocide there um, in in this just the horror of the genocide he lost most of his family so there was an attack on his church by surrounding uh, people from his area from his region and they killed his father five of his family members and 70 people in their church Uh, his mother they believed was dead uh, but she had fallen unconscious uh, beneath a pile of dead bodies and so eventually you know they were reunited but He endured the horror of this, and he talks about how for the next year or so after, he just harbored such resentment and anger and antagonism. He wanted vengeance. He wanted to see the perpetrators torn down, and justifiably so, understandably so, right? Like, I would too. You would too. But he says, over that year, God began to work on his heart and began to ask him, to remind him, listen, how much that I have forgiven you. And how a forgiven people become a forgiving people, and Jonah began. To, or I'm sorry, Celestine began to pray for his enemies. He began to pray for the people that he knew had murdered his family, and began to find God slowly, difficultly, but gradually beginning to heal his heart. And this was put to the test, though, a while later when he ran into the family members out in public of uh, those who had killed. And at first, everything in him wanted to run, wanted to avoid the situation, or wanted to explode in anger, but that work that God had done in his heart came to fruition where he walked across the room and he told them, my name is Celestin, your family killed my family members, and I want you to know that I forgive you, and I want to ask your forgiveness for the hatred and animosity I've held in my heart towards you. And they fell to the ground in weeping in tears, and they like Assyria here, and they apologized, they owned what had been done. And that became the seed work where they began to rebuild their community, their villages together. And that began to grow and spread into a movement where Celestin now leads uh, the African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries, this organization that works in uh, eight, nine countries throughout uh, Africa in conflict and post-conflict zones, working with reconciliation and peace building at all levels of society. And Celestine says, you know, the reality is that forgiveness sets you free. That the resentment and the bitterness and the anger inside, like it actually chews you up and tears you apart. It's not just what the enemy's done to you, but it's what the enemy, the spiritual enemy does when he gets within you. you But there's a forgiveness that God wants to do partly to set us free. And it raises the question for us this morning of who do you need to forgive? Like is there someone who has wounded you You see a picture here of god calling the oppressed going to their oppressor this message of forgiveness and that could be your dad who wounded you that could be that friend who betrayed you and it's not saying that we don't need healthy boundaries right like celestine would say there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation forgiveness has to do with the posture of your heart towards that person uh, but in order for there to be reconciliation uh, that requires that person, like, actually owning what's been done and beginning to rebuild trust again, right? So healthy boundaries are good. So hear me clearly, like, if you, are, for example, are a, a victim of sexual assault, this is not saying that you got to go hang out or become buddies with the person who did it, right? So healthy boundaries are good, but I do believe God wants to set us free, and that starts with forgiveness in our heart. How do we do that? That's often a work or a process that takes time. I think of one friend of mine who had someone who spread lies about them, rumors about them, gossip about them. They lost their whole friend network, everything. And they were just so angry. How could this person do this to me? But in order to forgive, they got a, a stone and they put it in their jacket pocket. We wore jackets a lot more back in Portland, right? It was cold. And whenever they would reach into the pocket and feel of stone, it was reminded to pray for that person. And so daily they would pray for this person who had wounded them. And about a year later, that led into a conversation with that person that worked towards moving forward with all that, right? I believe God is inviting us, not like Jonah, to not give a five-word sermon, but to give our lives, to lay down our lives, to love our enemies, as Jesus tells us, to pray for those who persecute us. And to become agents of God's reconciliation in the world. Okay, well, how does Assyria respond? Let's pick up here in verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king gets off his throne in order to put God on it, right? We see this picture here that when we encounter the gospel, we are invited to get off the throne, right? To get off the throne of our lives. The problem with Assyria and with the king, with everyone else, is that they have placed themselves at the center of their world, at their universe, and live for their own sake rather than having God at the center and living for his sake. This is the root of the problem. And when I think of this, call for us to get off the throne. It reminds me of um, my kids when we first moved here last summer. They had a nickname for Ricardo. Many of you know Ricardo's son, Eli, and they had a nickname for Eli. Eli's nickname was Get Off the Phone, Bro. And in order to understand the history behind this nickname, you have to understand that on our way here, we were driving from, you know, Portland to Phoenix, and we stopped in Disneyland for a few days. While we were in Disneyland, Ricardo sent me this Marco Polo. Here is the Marco Polo. Yo! This is your reminder that you're at the happiest place on earth. You should not be checking your phone or your Marco Marco Polo. I don't see. <laughs> get off the phone. Tell him to get off the phone, Eli. Get off the phone, bro! my kids love that. And every time they'd see Eli, they, or we are go, going somewhere, hey, is get off the phone, bro, going to be there? Get off the phone, bro. I'm like, hey, we're going to see Eli today. They'd be like, who's Eli? They, <laughs> they didn't know his actual name. Just get off the phone, bro. And just so you know, I wasn't actually checking my phone at Disneyland. I checked it later that night at the hotel. But we all got a kick out of that, right? Well, Eli's message to us was get off the phone, bro. And the gospel's message to us is get off the throne, bro, <laughs> right? Yes gospel comes to us and says, hey, you have placed yourself at the center of your world, uh, of your existence. You have ordered your world in such a way that you are at the center. But the call of the gospel is that that is a way and a road that leads to destruction, and the invitation is to get off the throne and to put God on it. Like this king who arose, it said, and he got down, and he called for this fast, and he covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. One of the things we see here is that the pagans get it better than the people of God. The dictator responds better than the prophet. This is still often true today. The outsiders often get it better than the insiders. God is pursuing Jonah, using all these crazy means, throwing him in the belly of a a whale or a fish and all this different stuff. And Jonah is still hardened and not getting it. And all Nineveh has is a shabby, five-word sermon that doesn't even mention God or any hope, and they are falling over themselves trying to get to God. The outsiders get it better than the insiders. This is an incredible picture. You can imagine if North Korea tomorrow called for national repentance and Kim Jong-un issued a decree across the country calling everyone to fast and cover themselves with burlap and and burn ashes and cover themselves in ashes. This would be an outrageous, incredible scene. That's the picture here. This is, I believe, the greatest miracle in the story of Jonah is that Assyria repents. And it poses the question, who have you written off? Who have you seen as being beyond the pale of God's mercy? That could be a friend or someone you know that you think, ah, they're just too far gone. They would never want Jesus. That could be, uh, in our society, a group of people that you just see as being beyond the pale or an enemy, and there's there's no way God could be for them or ever get to them. But God is calling us to expand our vision of his grace and how big and vast and wide his mercy is and the power of his ability to bring even the farthest-flung Folks, we might imagine to himself. Become people who are radically in love with himself. Another thing we see here is that repentance is both systemic and personal. In our culture, we tend to emphasize one or the other. Uh, The right tends to emphasize personal responsibility, and the left tends to emphasize systemic injustice, and the Bible emphasizes both. We see here the systemic nature of sin and repentance, that uh, we see this repentance, it's the kings and the nobles who lead the way. It is a national decree that gets issued. It is an an empire that is uh, collectively responsible for the destruction that they've caused, and they own it together. Yet this repentance is also personal. We see that uh, the the king says, let every person turn from his evil way, from the greatest to the least. So there's a recognition that Uh, We are also personally responsible for our role and our involvement in these broader societal trends. The repentance is also creational; it's not only personal and systemic. There's this funny image here that they like even call the cows to put on sackcloth and ashes and fast, right? And so it's like Old Bessie, dude. What does she do, right? But Old Bessie's getting covered in burlap and sitting in the ashes and. What is going on there? I think it's showing the impact of our sin. It affects not only our hearts, not only our societies, but it also affects all of creation held in bondage under the weight and tyranny of our sin. And because sin is so expansive, the effects of sin, this repentance is so expansive as well. Because God's goal is to restore and heal all creation. To heal us as persons, to heal our societies, and to heal his created order. God cares about both the wicked tree and the wicked roots that live in our hearts. He cares both about the wildfire of genocide that rages across a society, and he also cares about the spark of pride and of rage that can burn in our hearts. He cares both about the uh, systemic injustice of something like sex trafficking And he also cares about the wicked root of things like lust and greed that drive the industry and exist often in us. God cares about both because he is out to heal his world. The repentance in this scene is more than words. It also involves actions. They call for a fast wear sackcloth or burlap and they, they sit in the ashes. Sometimes I think today we, we have the sense that like, well, if I just say the words, God, I'm sorry, and then go back to what I was doing, right? But no, the idea of repentance is a turning. It's a turning from this one direction and heading in now the good, the other, the right direction. And these actions they take of fasting, sitting in burlap, they take off their Armani clothes and they put on the burlap, right? They burn some a- stuff to make ashes and they come themselves in ashes. It's a picture that they are sitting in the judgment that's about to They are anticipating the overthrow of Nineveh that has been predicted, right? Like they are, is a sign or a way of going, this judgment is right. God, we are deserving of the judgment that you have said is coming upon us. They show with their words and their actions, they recognize the justice of God's judgment upon them. And that their only hope is in his mercy. For us today, it's helpful for us to look at this through the lens that we are Assyria, right? Throughout the series, we've been looking often at how we are like Jonah, and that's true, but we are also like Assyria. If Jonah is a representative for the people of God or the church, we see Assyria as a representative for the powerhouses of the world, countries like ours, like America, right? And I'm not saying that we are as bad as North Korea or Assyria or anything like that. Um, I'm grateful to be an American. I'm grateful for our country. But I am saying that, like any country, we've got our stuff to own, right? We all, countries around the world, we have our stuff to own. And this raises the question, do we acknowledge and grieve and repent of the wickedness in our society, both personal and systemic? Do we lament over... Uh, the history of racism in our country and the systemic legacies and realities that that's left today? Do we grieve over the uh, impact of unhealthy sexuality in our society and the use of our bodies often in ways that dishonor God? Are we moved by and upset over like the greed and whether we're talking about the consumption of experiences or of stuff, but the need to just constantly accumulate and build to try and fill this hole that never gets full. I believe like Assyria that God would call us to identify both with our, our personal sin, but also to identify with our society, even when we might not be personally guilty, but to own and go, man, I am a part of a society, God, where this is a part legacy, and that we would identify with and cry out to God on behalf of, that we would seek God and allow him to make us agents of reconciliation as we experience his grace. Well, the good news of the gospel, too, is that when we do this, we encounter a God who just can't wait to wrap his arms around us and forgive, to show mercy. We see this in the finale of this passage, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. God loves your enemies more than you do. God loves your enemies more than you do. We see that here. God loves Nineveh way more than Jonah does and God loves our world more than we do. This it speaks to God's posture, that he is just waiting to show mercy, looking for an opportunity to extend forgiveness. And we see that repentance leads to relentance, right? Like Nineveh's repentance leads to God's relentance. And this looks reckless to Jonah. We should understand that, right? This looks reckless, like, God, you're letting North Korea off the hook? Like, you're letting ISIS walk away scott? free how does that work well the reality is God's judgment is eventually going to come upon uh, Nineveh It's coming a generation or so later and so what we see here is God's patience and foregoing this kind of judgment that is inevitable at some point but God shows mercy to this generation that turns towards him and repents of the direction they've been going Now, what does it mean that God relents, or uh, some versions like King James would say God repents? Uh, This can be confusing for some folks. Like, how does God repent? Does that mean, like, what he was going to do was bad, and now he's changed, he's going to do something good? Uh, No, in Hebrew, the the word is naham, and it basically means, it it doesn't mean necessarily like you were doing something bad, um, but it means that you are acting according to the circumstances. The circumstances have changed, and God is acting in accordance with the circumstances. This can still be confusing sometimes, like, was God caught off guard? Like, or I'm going to crush you guys, and then, whoa, wait a second, they repented. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Well, never mind, okay? You know, like, was God caught off guard and just kind of, no. There's a a couple observations here that I think can help illuminate what's going on in this, this scene. The first observation is this. There is a play on words in Hebrew going on here. Throughout the book of Jonah, the word disaster and evil show up in English, but in Hebrew, they're actually the same word, uh, just getting translated evil when it's us acting, disaster when it's God bringing the consequences upon them. So let's look at the the verse here and see it. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, ra'ah, away, God relented of the disaster, ra'ah, that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, ra'ah, and he was angry. Now, my paraphrase of what's going on here in the Hebrew would be this: that When Assyria turned from the disaster they were doing to others, God turned from the disaster He was going to do to them. And Jonah thought this was disastrous. <laughs> like, that's kind of the sense here. And the picture, the reality is that when you rebel against reality, you're going to crash up against the rocks of that reality. We're reading it. Tim Keller, I believe, says something like that uh, on the Proverbs, uh, discussing the Proverbs, that when you rebel against reality, you crash up against the rocks of reality, and God is the one who has ordained and sustains and upholds that reality. And so if you are a womanizer, you should not be surprised if you find yourself down the road isolated and alone. If you use and abuse substances to try and fill that hole and that hurt and numb that pain inside— Uh, you should not be shocked if you find yourself addicted downstream if you squander all your money and resources on pleasure and just kind of living for the moment don't be surprised when your bank account's empty before long right there is a reality to the world and some of you are on a collision course with destruction but god in his grace he sends us warnings like he sent jonah to Assyria going, hey, stop, I don't want you to keep going down this road because it's one that goes right off a cliff and you're picking up speed. And when we turn from that direction, when we go back towards the grain of the universe, back towards the way that God has ordained reality, it's not saying that there won't still be some consequences in our lives, but it is saying that God loves to take us and start to rebuild health and move us back towards ways that lead to life the first observation here is this play on words. The second observation is what was the part of the sermon that Jonah left out? We get a picture of this in Jeremiah 18, the prophetic message of God for the nations. Where it says, God says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, like he said he was going to do to Nineveh. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, like Nineveh did, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plan it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. God is acting in full accordance with his character. This is the second half of the sentence that Jonah left off. This is the other part of the message that he failed to and refused to give. And yet this is the part that Nineveh, even without Jonah saying it, like they held out hope, maybe God in his mercy that he might relent. They held out hope and the character of God that was actually accurate. And God is here acting in accordance with his character, even in spite of Jonah, his rebellious prophet. The third thing we see is that the prophecy actually comes true. Nineveh is overthrown. Here's what I mean. Jonah says, "Hey, 40 days and the city will be overthrown." <coughs> and this word "overthrown" can actually be m- be used two different ways. It literally means to turn or to turn over, like flipping an omelet, right? And one way it's used in the Old Testament is to describe the overthrow of a city, like Sodom and Gomorrah gets overthrown, turned over, destroyed, right? Uh, But another way it gets used is for the human heart. We see stories in the Old Testament where when people repent or they change or they change their ways, that their heart is overthrown by God. And there's this powerful picture here that Nineveh, in response to this half-hearted word from a rebellious prophet, Nineveh's heart and character is overthrown by the relentless love of God. God's word comes true just not in the way that Jonah wanted or expected it. I believe the invitation for us tonight is to be overthrown. Like the gospel invites us to have your heart overthrown by the relentless love of God. And this theme of being overthrown, it's actually, uh, it's been a theme throughout this book of Jonah. We see that Jonah is overthrown, thrown overboard, right, into the waters, as part of God's pursuit to wake him up and bring him back to his calling. We see that Nineveh is threatened with being overthrown, like overturned like an omelet, as part of God's pursuit of getting them drawn back towards himself. And we find here for ourselves that all this is being driven by the relentless pursuit of God whose love has the power to revolutionarily overthrow and transform our lives as we're drawn into union with him. So as we come to the table tonight, to communion, as we come to the bread of Christ's body broken and the wine of his blood shed, we're invited to have our hearts overthrown by the relentless love of Jesus who has pursued us so extravagantly reunite us with himself. And I think there's two questions that I would leave us with tonight as we come to the table. The first is, what do you need to own? Like Assyria, I think the invitation is that we would not minimize the things that we have done or the people that we are a part of. If there is any uh, sin or evil in your life personally or any things that you are god is weighing upon your heart the spirit of god might be stirring in you that you have been seen kind of systemically and in our culture at large that we would bring that to jesus tonight That we would come and bring that because it's when you realize how relentlessly god is pursuing and coming after you to restore you when you see god's posture towards you it frees up your posture towards god to bring anything you've got to bring before him so what do you need to own Second question, who do you need to forgive? Like Jonah, is there someone that you're harboring resentment towards, animosity towards, that you just see as beyond the pale, that they could never, they're too far gone. But the gospel says that a forgiven people become a forgiving and that God wants the forgiveness we've received to so transform our hearts. Like Celestin says, that forgiveness sets us free from the bitterness, the resentment, the anger. And that might be a po- process, and it may involve a lot of prayer to God and for that other person. But that God wants to overthrow our hearts with his relentless love. And that it would display itself in our posture towards those who've wounded us. And that we would not just give him a half-hearted five-word sermon, but that we would give him our lives. So as we come to the table tonight, the invitation, is, who do you need to forgive? And As the communion servers come forward uh, to take the elements, the bread and the wine, the reality is we can do all of this because Jesus is a better Jonah. Jesus is a better Jonah who allowed himself to be overthrown for us. That we find in Jesus, Jesus, uh, he would allow himself to be thrown overboard, right? Not only to walk the plank, but he runs and takes a swan dive into the swirling waters of our chaos, of our death. He allows himself to be swallowed by the beast of death and go down into the grave. Jesus walks right into the belly of the beast, into the heart of the Roman Empire, under the authority of his people, Israel's leadership at that time, and under the weight and power of your and my sin. And Jesus takes on the belly of the beast. He allows it to overthrow him in order that he might overthrow its power for us to reconcile and restore us to God. And the beauty, the gospel, is that the grave could not hold him. The beast could not keep him down. And so on the third day, it spit him out onto dry land. And now he has disarmed the powers and authorities of this world. Jesus has been exalted to the throne over all of heaven and all of earth. Jesus reigns in the invitation of the Gospels to repent and turn and to allow our lives, like Assyria, to be overthrown by the relentless love of Christ. And as we lay our lives down before him, that our lives would be shaped and that we would get off the throne of our lives in order to place him on the throne and live our lives in submission and sacrificial love to his reign. The one who gave his life, allowed himself to be overthrown. to pray and then we're going to come to the table tonight to christ our king would you stand and join me in prayer jesus thank you that you allowed yourself to be overthrown for us God. that you walked right into the belly of the beast that you are that better jonah who took on the powers and principalities of our world god that you came in and you preached the kingdom of god not only that our road was on a way to destruction, but that if we would turn, that we could find life and forgiveness and healing as citizens of your kingdom and life with you. Jesus, we declare that you are victorious and exalted, that you are the great king over all of heaven and earth. Lord, I pray that we would get off the throne of our own lives, God, and that we would establish you there and let you be the driving and ultimate authority over us as you already are over our world. God, that our lives might display your glory and knowing and trusting of your loving purposes towards us to heal and restore our lives in your world. Jesus, I pray tonight that by the power of your spirit, your very presence who is here and is present with us, would you convict us? God, I pray for every person in this room tonight, myself included, God, if there are areas of our heart, if there are areas and ways that we have been in personal rebellion against you, our own personal Ninevehs, God, Or ways, God, that you might weigh and oppress upon us the weight of our societal and cultural and systemic sin. We want to bring that to you tonight, Jesus, as we come to the table. Jesus, I pray for any who are wrestling with forgiveness, that are harboring resentment, that it has them uh, chained, God, that it has them bound with the the hostility, the animosity that's chewing them up inside. Jesus, with the great forgiveness that you have shown to us, God, Pray tonight that in the power of your spirit, Lord, your very presence would begin to soften hardened hearts through the power of your grace that we might become agents of your reconciliation in our war-torn world, Lord. Guide us in the steps we need to make to begin praying for those who would persecute us and loving our enemies as you have loved us when we were your enemies, God. Jesus, we come to you tonight as a people who have been overthrown by your relentless love. We don't want to get tossed over a ship or have our city destroyed, whatever else, God. God, we want the deeper reality that's been driving this whole story the whole time, God, which is that you are pursuing God who comes after us to reconcile and restore us and make us whole in union with you. Jesus, it's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.